Bibles with you. Can you open your Bibles up to Ephesians 6? We are a Bible preaching church. You must be in the Word of God. We will not preach anything but what the Word of God says. And if you have the Bible that is from the pew, you can open that up to page 979. But we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're concluding the series on the armor of God, the This Is War series. And I want to begin by telling you that the devil has limited strategies. That might be actually shocking to you. He does not have unlimited strategies. And the names that the Bible gives to the devil reveals a lot of his strategies. I'm going to give you some of those names. In fact, I'm going to give you most of the names that the Bible assigns to the devil. The word devil, here's what it means. It means slanderer and divider. That's two of the strategies that the devil has towards every Christian. Jesus called Satan Beelzebub. That, that, that name, you might find it's interesting, especially if you remember your days in school when you read the book, a name that means the Lord of the Flies. That's what Beelzebub means. It was a pagan idol that was supposed to protect from swarms of flies, but the Jews viewed that pagan idol as the god of filth and impurity that attracts flies. The devil was given the name in the Bible, Belial, which means a false god. That was the name of a false god that diverted people from worshiping Jehovah. He's called the evil one, the Greek word for absolute corruption. He's also called the angel of the bottomless pit, which one day he will be thrown into. Paul titles him the tempter. While Jesus referred to him as the prince of this world, he is the father of lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. That is actually most, those names that I just gave you are actually most of the names that the Bible assigns to the being that we know by the name Satan. And his name, his names show his strategies and he works Without stopping, you know he doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't get tired. He has really near limitless stamina, and he works all the time along with the demons under his rule to steal, kill, and destroy wherever he can. And this is where Paul takes us as we conclude our army, or our study rather, on the armor of God. Do you remember the six pieces that we have taught you? Do you remember the belt of truth, which is the confidence that God's word is supreme, it is true, it is good? you got to tighten that belt. It holds the entire armor together. The breastplate of righteousness, which is the firm belief that we are right with God through Christ. He's going to try to divide you, Christian. He's going to try to plant in your minds that God is angry with you, that you have sinned too much, that you've gone too far away from him. Well, the breastplate of righteousness is that firm belief. He loves you. You are right with him through Christ. The shoes for your feet give you an unshakable confidence that Christ will care for you in any and every circumstance. The shield of faith allows you to stand against the enemy's attacks, knowing no weapon formed against you will prevail. Why? Because the power of God. The helmet of salvation, that firm conviction that the God who saved you and the God who is saving you, sanctifying you, 
is doubtlessly going to be the God that will one day glorify you for all eternity. And the sword of the Spirit, the greatest weapon possible, because by its truth, it severs the lies of the devil, exposing and shattering them in the power of truth. So I'm going to ask you what might be seemingly unlikely questions, but let me ask you a series of questions, and I want you to really think about these for a moment. Are you in turmoil over your children, young or old? Are you struggling with your boss or an an employee that you manage? Are you angry with your parents? Are you tired of them telling you what to do? Are you failing? Now, I want you to think, be honest, it's just you and God right now. Are you failing in the area of purity? Is your heart full of anger and bitterness? Are you being overcome by drinking, drugs, or any other addiction? Now, I want you to to grab those questions for a moment because I want you to note that the armor of God teaching follows chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians where every single one of those scenarios are mentioned. Now, just in case I'm not making that clear enough, The Apostle Paul mentions all about husbands and wives in their marriages, all about purity, all about children with their fathers and their mothers, all about masters with their slaves, all about bitterness, all about anger, all about resentment, all about forgiveness. All of that teaching is in chapters 4 and 5, and then he introduces the teaching on the armor of God. Do you understand the relationship? You need the armor of God. I need the armor of God to endure in all of those. And I'm going to tell you why. You ready? And this is the greatest thing I'm going to tell you in the introduction. All of those struggles that I just mentioned, every single one of them, I hope you're hearing this. This is how I began this entire series with this point exactly. Every one of those struggles play out in the physical realm, but have their roots in the spiritual. And sometimes, and I think oftentimes, and likely most of us, we see the weeds from the ground up, and we pluck them, but we don't get to the roots. And we wonder, and we marvel, and we fall into despair, why is that weed growing again in my life? Well, you never got to the roots. The root is in the heavenly places, and there is a battle going on. And the answer that Paul gives us is that we must, verse 18 of chapter 6, be praying at all times in the Spirit. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to bring you simply two points. And I think I might, at least for many of us, be teaching you something that you might not have ever considered before. I want you to open up your bulletin if you have it, and I want you to possibly even take notes. I know some of you may not do that very often. Some of you do it very, very faithfully. I would encourage you for this particular sermon, you may want to do that. Because all I'm going to do is, I hope, whet the appetite of your soul to pursue this a little bit deeper. Because this will literally make or break your victory in the heavenly places. Point number one, prayer opens our eyes to the spiritual war that rages all around us. 
Now, I hope you don't consider those words lightly. Because it sounds kind of, I don't know, ostentatious. That prayer opens your eyes to the spiritual war all around you. Where would you see that in the Bible? Well, I think maybe you're familiar with the story in 1 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha, the prophet of God, awoke one morning to find that the the Syrian army had surrounded the city that he was living in. They surrounded it to capture him. They found out that Elisha was the one that was telling the king where the Syrian army was going to strike. He was prophesying, forth telling. And they woke to this, he and his servant, and his servant is terrified. And he asked them, Elisha, what are we going to do? And I want you to notice from the word of God what happens and keep point number one right in the front of your mind. He says, Elisha does, do not be afraid, servant. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now he stops talking to the servant and he begins praying. <coughs> I have a summer cold, by the way. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord did. He opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Do you know what God did for that servant? He opened his eyes to the heavenly places where the battle is truly raging. Do you know where, I, where Elisha's eyes were continually open? To the heavenly places where the battle is continually raging. You see, prayer opens the eyes to the spiritual world that is playing out in the physical world. And I'm going to tell you, including me, I know very few Christians who have a vibrantly healthy, deep prayer life. And we wonder, why are we being surprised at the fiery trials that are coming against us? Why did we not see them coming? Well, you may not see chariots of fire all around you when you pray. But your spiritual eyes of faith will be opened and you will know that God is work and that your heart will be stilled of fear. I'm going to tell you personally, if you're a parent, you know there is a boatload of joy that comes with a job and there's not a shortage of grief. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to promise to you something that I have learned by experience as a parent, that every time I am overcome with grief, every time that it seems that we parented to no avail, every time that I begin praying and God shows me what he is doing and God refortifies my faith, I emerge with confidence and joy and a renewed love and determination to parent as a godly father. This is the power of prayer. And too many of us, let's just be honest, are forfeiting it. And we're losing the battles. You see, prayer works like the radio that every military unit has to receive warnings from headquarters as well as to ask 
for support. Prayer works like binoculars that enable you to see the enemy who is massing and moving against you and other people. It works like radar that shows incoming fiery darts and attacks. It gives you time to get the anti-ballistic shield of faith in place. This is the power of prayer. Do you have it in your life? I mean, honestly, let's consider that for a moment. Now, don't mistake for a moment. Yeah, I pray. Three or four times a day, I throw up a prayer to the Lord. That's certainly wonderful and inadequate. Is there a deep fellowship of intimacy that you have as you have connection time with God in prayer? You know, over 100 years ago, Charles Eliot wrote the, the words to this hymn. I, th- I find them extremely poignant, very, very powerful. Christians, seek not yet repose. Don't, don't try to get your rest in this world. Cast thy dreams of ease away. Thou art in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. Principalities and power mustering their unseen array. Wait for the unguided hours. So watch and pray. Watch as if on that alone hung the issue of the day. Pray that help may be sent down. Watch and pray. This is the exact hymn that we need to hear that helps us understand Paul's command. So we are to be praying at all times. Look at that verse again. He's just echoing, it seems, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. You probably are familiar with that. But there's a bit of a difference here, and I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek. It's kind of fun because we use these words all the time. The word time, little pun there, we use these words all the time. My humor is way above you right now. In Ephesians, in our verse, Paul is intentionally using the Greek word for time that is kairos. Can everybody say kairos? He didn't use another Greek word that was available called chronos, which actually you should be familiar with, chronology. There are even watches with chronos on it. That refers to general time. Chronos is general time. I'll give you an example. You might say to somebody, tonight, let's get together and do lunch sometime. Well, you don't really have a specific time in mind. You just are speaking generally. Well, that's not what Paul is doing here, but many kind of take it like that, praying at all times, like you got to be praying throughout the day. What, what are you, a slacking Christian that you're not perpetually turning to the Lord in prayer every moment? That's not what he's saying. He's using the word kairos, and kairos means a very distinct moment in time. And there's a world of difference between general time and specific time. Here's another example. Uh, You might say tonight, let's meet for lunch tomorrow at 1230. That's kairos time. That's a specific point in time. Now look back at Ephesians 6.13. I trust you have your Bibles open so you can do this. Look at verse 13 in our passage. This is really important. And Paul warns us, he says, Christian, I'm going to tell you a little secret. You're going to have an evil day. Look at that word in there, that phrase, evil day. There's evil days coming. 
That's when all hell is going to break loose. And it's going to break loose on your marriage. It's going to break loose on your family, on your dating relationship, on your health, your work, your beliefs, your faith. Listen, it's going to break loose. There will be an evil day. It is the attack of the enemy. There's going to be a specific time, Kairos, when the enemy is going to attack you. So you've got to be praying in those times. You've got to get that early warning system up. So that you will, 1 Peter 4, 12, not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I get Christians all the time coming to talk to me. I can't believe this is happening to me. And I'm like, why are you surprised if you're praying at all times for the moments that the attacks come? You will never be surprised. You will be anticipating it. You will have the radar out. You've got the binoculars on. You've got the radio in your soul. God is speaking. He's using somebody to get you ready. He's using the word to get you ready. If you're not in the word, your belt of truth is off, then you're not able to be ready for the attack in that moment. You've got to be praying at all times. Now, there's nothing better than to see this in action, and there is no better way to see it in action than in the Bible, and there's no better way to see it in action in the Bible than in Jesus. So let me show you how Jesus did this very same thing. He's prayed without ceasing, and he prayed at all times. Do you remember when he said to Simon, this is Peter, this is hours before he's crucified. It's literally around midnight. He will be on the cross nine hours later. That same morning. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, that's a very intense Greek word. You got to listen. Satan demanded, now be careful with that theologically. It just literally means he intensely asked. Satan cannot demand God of anything, he can intensely ask. He did it with Job, he did it with Peter. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now watch Kairos. Watch Jesus. But I have prayed for you. Now, how did he know that Satan asked this? Now, your quick answer might be, well, he was omniscient. Do you know and understand that, yes, he was on omniscient? But Philippians 2, the whole, if you like theology, canonic verse, canonic verse, tells you that he took on flesh and he... He gave the ability, or rather the the discretion of using his divinity at all times. He gave that to the Father. So his food was to do the will of God. He needed to pray. He prayed and God spoke. He prayed and God told him, here's your disciples. Here's the ones I want you to call. So yes, Jesus is omniscient. He is fully God. He is fully man. Yet he limited himself in the exercise of that so that he needed to pray. He needed time with his father. He needed that radar system. And so the father spoke through the Spirit of God. We should not be surprised at that. And he spoke, the devil is going to attack Peter. He wants to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter was a believer. He's justified. He's declared right with God. Satan had lost his authority. Christian, I want you to hear me for a moment. 
if the moment you turn to Christ, the devil can no longer exercise his power against you at his will. He must always come to the Father. Can I attack Tim Ackley? And yes, there are times that the Father in heaven says, yes, you can do this and no more. But he will begin already fortifying me. He will already have people coming to me. He will already bring the word of God to get me ready as I am praying at all times. Not even hours later, not even three hours later after Jesus said this to Peter, Peter was out by the fire. Jesus was in a trial, which was illegal. And he denied him three times. You know what happened right before that? He's in the garden of Gethsemane sleeping, and Jesus says, why aren't you praying? Why are you not praying at all times, Peter? Why are you not getting ready? Your radar is down, and I even warned you. Unfortunately, he fell. He abandoned Christ. He denied even knowing him, and he fled into the darkness, but thank God, for the mercy of our Heavenly Father. It wasn't long before Jesus came and restored Peter and his faith endured the rest of his life. Even when we fail, our God is merciful to us. Amen? You see, prayer opens our spiritual eyes to the heavenly places where all of Satan's strategies are being planned. They are being executed from there. The Syrian king asked, who keeps telling Israel of all of our attacks? And the answer was Elisha. Well, the devil asked, who keeps telling that Christian of my strategies? And the answer is the Spirit of God. And when you're praying at all times, the Spirit of God is speaking to you. You may not even be aware that there's an attack coming, but he's already sending a friend. He's already sending a song. He's already got a verse ready for you. There is fortification for your soul that he is giving to you. Praying at all times. See, prayer opens your eyes to the battle that's taking place in the, heavenly, in the heavenlies. But point number two, and this might be a little bit unique to some, or at least new to, to some, prayer moves God to act. Prayer moves God to act. Paul goes on in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, by the way, time out real quick. You're kind of wondering... Is that a synonym, prayer and supplication? They're actually two different words. Prayer is general request to God, where supplication is a specific request. So Paul says, pray your general prayers and get your specific prayers. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So here we go. I mean, this is shocking. When I read this about eight years ago, I think it was around eight years ago, I couldn't believe it. It just lifted out of the page for me. We've got the greatest theologian in the New Testament who's asking people to pray for him, and look what his prayer request is. Boldness. Now, can I give you a little insight, which immediately is going to make sense? You never, ever, and I do not either, pray and ask for God for something that you already have. 
I mean, that's kind of ludicrous. You ask God for something that you're lacking. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul struggling with boldness? He's in prison for two years, chained to a guard, and he's asking, would you pray for me that I might have boldness to declare the gospel? Asked twice. And you might be wondering, well, I, I kind of would like to know, did God answer the prayer? You do not need to wonder. For the word of God will tell you, Philippians chapter 1, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Listen, he lacked courage he lacked boldness he asked them to pray for him god heard that prayer and he supplied so much boldness that the entire imperial guard knew why he was in prison he knew they had known and they had heard about jesus christ you see prayer moves god to act there is great power when we pray for each other in our spiritual battles and we're about to see this in the book of Daniel, which is page 748 in your pew Bible. Can you all turn to Daniel chapter 10? This is really important. Daniel chapter 10. And as you turn to Daniel 10, I'm going to provide the backdrop for you. So let's all get our Bibles open. I'm going to show you something that you may never have seen before. You might, you might have, but you might not have. And this can be wildly thrilling for you to hear this. Here's what happened previously to Daniel chapter 10. God's people had been defeated by Babylon. And they were taken into Babylon as exiles, slaves. And Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was burned. It was razed to the ground. The walls were destroyed. The homes inside the walls of Jerusalem were reduced to rubble. It is an incredibly terribly sad time for the people of God. And for 70 years, just like God had foretold, they were exiles in Babylon, but there came a day when Babylon itself was conquered by the Persians. And the ruler now was Cyrus, king of Persia. And by the way, you may not have known this, he actually had two names. You'll see one of them in chapter 9, verse 1, and the other one in chapter 10, verse 1. His other name was Darius the Mede. Think Daniel in the lion's den. That's the same guy, Cyrus and Darius. That's often the way they did it. They had two different names. And the very first year after Persia conquers Babylon, in the rule of Cyrus, he permits the Jews to go back home. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, he didn't do that for any other people group that we know historically, but he says to the Jews, because God had prophesied it, God had determined it, you can go home, and bleakly, sadly, only 50,000 of them chose to go in the first wave. That's pretty sad. They had gotten comfortable in Babylon. Things weren't very good at home. They chose to stay in their comfort. So in the first year, God begins to bring his people home, 
50,000 of them to a desolate city, and it is surrounded, Jerusalem is, by powerful, powerful enemies that hate the people of God and hate God. And they began to work on restoring the temple, and the very first thing that they did back in Jerusalem, they rebuilt the altar, they got that rebuilt, they brought sacrifices to God, and then all of this opposition erupted, and they were discouraged, and they were in despair, and they quit. If I remember right, for 15 years, they did nothing. This is why the book of Haggai was written, to encourage them to get moving again. So what began as joyful celebration of restoring the temple turned to work-halting despair. Deeply, deeply discouraging time for God's people. Now, listen to this. Daniel, who is still in Babylon, you know why? Because he's 85 years old. He could not make the journey. And he heard about what, what had happened, that they had stopped the work, that the opposition had arisen, and he was greatly troubled over it, and he began to pray, and he began to fast for his people in Jerusalem. Now, Christian, I want you to hear me for a moment. Can you look at me? This is so important. I want you to understand this. I want you to get this down in your mind. You must learn this if you don't know it already, because this will save you from failure after failure. Great Victory is always followed by a spiritual attack. Do you understand that? Great spiritual victory is always, I'm not even telling you sometimes or even usually, I'm telling you will always be followed by great spiritual troubles and attacks. You've got to expect it that the day after you get saved, you're going to wonder what on earth did I just do? My life wasn't this hard before I became a Christian. After you get baptized, you're going to feel the attacks. After you have a wedding, you watch what happens to your marriage. You get a victory over sin, and wow, you think you're coasting for a while. Here comes that temptation. Sooner or later, it could be a week, a month, three years, five years. It's coming back. And when it comes back, if you're not ready for it, you will be mowed under by its severity. The enemy always responds when God moves in powerful triumph. He always responds. So look at Daniel 9. We're coming back to Daniel 10, but look at Daniel 9 if you would. Verses 1 through 19, Daniel is praying to God for Israel. He's praying for the holy hill of God, that's Jerusalem. Look what he's doing. He's such a godly man. He's confessing his sin. He's confessing the people's sins. Listen, why is he doing that? Here's another principle for prayer. If you want God to move upon your prayer, you've got to know, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Psalm 66, 18. If you're praying and God's not listening, God's not moving, the very first thing you want to do is not check for God's hearing to get repaired, check for your heart to get restored. Because there might be sin in there. Unconfessed sin. But you get to verse 21 of chapter 9, and in Daniel, he's visited by the angel Gabriel, who begins to explain God's word. And I want to teach you this principle. Oh, Daniel, he says, I have come, verse 22, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Now watch this, underline this, underscore this. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I don't know if you're hearing this. I'm going to assume you're not. So I'm going to repeat this. At the very first word you prayed, God already began to move. 
You think that's different for you, Christian? I'm going to show you a little bit later it's not. The very first word you pray, God begins to move. Daniel, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. And you might be saying, well, well, wait a minute, that's Daniel. I mean, this is a man of God. Man, I stumble all over the place spiritually. You are declared righteous. You have the Son of God, Jesus' blood, covering your life. And when God sees you, Christian, he sees you as if you never sinned in your life. He sees you as if you lived the perfect life of Jesus because he saw Jesus on the cross as if he had committed every one of your sins. It was a great exchange. So he looks at you and he declares over you, you are greatly loved. His love doesn't dim for you and it was like beaming bright for Daniel. John 17, Jesus says, Father, show them. You have loved them the same degree you've loved me. Christian, I hope you're getting that. God loves Jesus no more than he loves you. And he loves you no less than he loves his only begotten son. You are greatly loved. From the very first word Daniel prayed, God sent Gabriel to help and he came, verse 21. Look at what it says. In swift flight. And Christian, you know this. There are times when you pray and God's response comes fast. And it is beautiful when it happens. However, there are other times where it seems like your prayer was not even heard. And I'm going to show you sometimes why that is. Now, James chapter 4 says you ask, you have not because you ask not. Sometimes we just don't pray and ask. That's why we're not getting help. He also says that sometimes when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. So sometimes we're asking God for something that's coming out of a deviant motive in our heart. And God's not about to answer that. Even any more than a parent will give a child something that's not going to be good for the child. But there is another reason sometimes where while we pray and pleading and out of great trouble, it seems that the prayer is not working. It seems like God is not moving. Well, if you could go back to Daniel 10, and I won't make you move again after that. If you go back to Daniel 10, again, he's in his late 80s, Daniel is. And now it's two years since Daniel chapter 9 was written, two years later. That the 50,000 people had gone back, back, back to Jerusalem. They had fallen on difficult times because of the enemies. They had quit. They were discouraged. And he, look what it says. He saw or he heard a great conflict had fallen on the Jews that had returned to Jerusalem. And he begins to mourn, and this is Passover time. He begins to observe a partial fast, and he prays for 21 days for his people in Jerusalem. And at the end of those 21 days, he's standing on the riverbank. And he sees and he hears a being so glorious, verse 9, that he face plants and passes out. No, I believe that's Jesus that he saw. Very similar description of him later in the Bible. But it's not Jesus that comes to him and wakes him up from his swoon and says, Daniel, get on your feet. I want to talk to you. In verse 12, fear not, Daniel, this 
angel, this being, and maybe Gabriel again, we don't know, but he says, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. Now here's that principle again. The very first part of your prayer was heard. There's no delay. And I have become because of your words. So the very beginning of his prayer, God begins to move. He begins to act. Prayer moves God to act. And he begins to send help to Daniel in the form of this angelic being. Now watch what happens to the angelic being. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's a demon. That's an incredibly powerful demon. Some believe that is Satan himself, for this is the most powerful nation in the world at that time, Persia. It very well could have been. Nonetheless, we don't know. We just know it's the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and a a demonic being withstood this angelic messenger for 21 days. Can you even fathom that? This God moved. God heard the prayer from the beginning. He sent help. But the angel ran into opposition for three weeks, the very same time that Daniel had been fasting and praying and mourning. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. He's one of the chief, most powerful angels in all of the heavenly places. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So here we go again. Just like chapter 9, the moment Daniel began to pray, God heard and God moved. This time his help was delayed. This time by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, look in verse 20, it's going to be in the future the prince of Greece because Alexander the Great will come to power and that will become the ruling force in the world and there will be a demon that oversees that kingdom just like there was likely a demon overseeing Stalin's kingdom and Hitler's kingdom or the power and influence of many godless organizations today. I mean, listen, if you pray and your eyes open, you're going to see there is a battle in the heavenly places and there are strong enemies that are working with these countries, working with these companies, working with these people to give them strength, to give them charisma, to give them influence, all for opposition against. God. I mean, listen, do you wonder at Alexander's military success? Nobody could withstand him. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, what's playing out on the physical has its roots in the spiritual, and if you're not learning to pray at all times, you are oblivious to what's happening. There is a form of demonic hierarchy Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, there are ranks, there are greater demons, lesser demons, and they all work to oppose God and his church. They all work with the aim of keeping people in darkness to frustrate the gospel, to prevent the reign of Jesus Christ. This is why our first campus was downtown Easton. This place had churches fleeing 12 years ago. In fact, 12 churches, when we came in, were leaving Easton. 
We were virtually the only church coming into Easton. We came in to present the gospel, to love with the power of God's word. This is why our next plant, our next campus, is being planned for the slate belt. There's not a lot of God-fearing, evangelical, Christ-preaching churches in the slate belt. There's not enough. It's why we took an extraordinary step of faith and started Restoring Hope Ministry in Dungu, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now listen, are your eyes open, Christian brothers and sisters, to what's really behind the millions of deaths in the Congo? Do you really think that's just dictatorial rule and militia groups? There are strong demons that are working to oppose the gospel, and they have an epicenter of power in the Congo. The gospel has got to get there. That's why we're there. See, every work of God is opposed. And there are strong rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers at work. And the battle is not easy. I mean, listen, even this powerful angelic being was not able to break through until Michael, just one of the chief princes, came to help. Below our physical world is a battle raging in the heavenly places, and prayer opens your eyes to it, and it moves God to act. You see somebody that's an alcoholic? Let me tell you what not to do. You just don't deal with the physical. You get to the spiritual. Because the physical can get them a reprieve for a time, but if you want to break the roots if you want to deal with the heavenly places armor or, or uh, army that's assailing against that person, you've got to get to prayer, and you've got to get your eyes open, and you've got to plead with God to move, and you've got to ask people to move and pray with you. See, he's praying for Jerusalem, Daniel is. What did God do? You know, you know what God did? This is amazing. I would invite you to read the Minor Prophets. You're going to read all about this. He answered... Daniel's prayer by sending godly leaders like Zerubbabel, Haggai, Joshua the high priest, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of them he sent to help his people rebuild and restore Jerusalem. He lifts the spirits of the Jewish people. He gave them favor and protection all the way to the highest king of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. He gave them his favor. Now, some of you, I think, are likely asking or have asked, probably most of you, why bother to pray? Why bother to pray? I mean, Tim, you tell us all the time that God is omniscient. He knows everything, that God is sovereign, that his power brings all things in alignment with his will. So if God is omniscient and God is sovereign, why bother praying? Does it really make a difference anyways? I'm going to show you the difference it makes. Paul brings it out so beautifully clear. For we do not want you to be unaware, 2 Corinthians 1, brothers of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf. Now listen to this. For the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Did you know, Christian brother and sister, that your prayers for other people move God to act and bring his blessings? 
And I'm just going to tell you very simply that if you're not praying, then I believe God withholds those blessings. See, he's chosen to work through us. Yes, he could do everything. He's omniscient. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He has all power. But he has chosen to do his work of blessing and rescuing and delivering by our prayers. See, prayer moves God to act, and the lack of prayer forfeits the blessings that could have been. So, Christian, let me give you a few scenarios. We're almost done with the message, but... How about you whose husband has hardened his heart against the Lord? How about the one who gets pulled into human resources on charges of misconduct because of your faith, because you're sharing Christ too much? You know it's not about that. You know know it's not about an employee-employer relationship. It's because there's a battle in the heavenly places. How about you, parent, whose child is hardened her heart against the Lord? You've cried out to the Lord, still the battle rages on. Nothing seems to change. And you pray for a week, you pray for two weeks, you pray for five, ten, twenty years, yet still no change. And my question to you is, will you be like Daniel and persevere in prayer? Will you learn to pray at all times so that the moment of the attack does not surprise you and leave you wondering? And will you ask other believers to pray for you? I am absolutely dumbfounded by the number of Christians in this church who will not ask other Christians to pray for them. No wonder you're losing the battles. If the Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian, asks for prayer, can you not humble yourself and ask? Do you know that God's forfeiting his blessings for you because you will not ask for other people to pray? Do you believe that God has heard your prayers from the very first word? Do you understand that sometimes powerful beings can impose, oppose their answer for a time? But even in the midst of that, do you trust that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world? And do you know and do you believe with certainty that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working? Christian, you've got to put on your armor. And you've got to pray at all times. And it's only then that you will have spiritual victory in the heavenly places. Let me close with a quote from William Cowper. He said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Pray at all times. Ask people to pray. Know that God heard your prayer from the very first word. And though it may be opposed in the short term, he is moving and he will ultimately prevail. And blessings will be yours. Amen? Let's pray.